You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a History of the Second World War interview. This time, I was joined by Dr. Michael Hankins, who has done a tremendous amount of research and writing on fighter pilot culture and nostalgia in the decades after the First World War. Our interview, which will begin here in just a few moments, will track the evolution of that fighter pilot culture throughout the course of the years during and after the First World War, through the Second World War, and then into the post-war period. The evolution of air power is a piece of history that is absolutely critical to understanding the Second World War, a statement that I do not think should surprise anybody. Entering the First World War, aviation was a tool that most people knew existed and knew that it might be useful, but could not in any way predict the ways in which it would evolve. What started out as a slow and fragile reconnaissance aircraft would morph into the first dedicated bombers and fighter aircraft by the end of the war. This rapid evolution during the war years left many with an open question. Air power was certainly an important new military tool, but how should it be used, and how would it evolve in the future? While each nation had a slightly different view on how things would evolve, there were a few key trends. The presence and dominance of supporters of bombing and air-to-ground attack in general was a fact in many nations during the 1920s and and also during the early and mid-1930s. This is not really the place for a deep dive into why this was the case and what drove the prevalence of strategic bombing theory, we'll get to that in a later episode. But as it related to -to air-to-air combat, there were some serious challenges for fighter aircraft to overcome. One of the major problems was that during most of the interwar period, and really right up to just a few years before the Second World War, fighters were mostly incapable of properly dealing with the bombing attack shortcomings that were rooted in the lack of early warning systems and the problems of speed. In the time before radar became more refined and more widespread, it was very challenging for bombers to be intercepted before they dropped their bombs. It was a math problem, with speed and altitude strongly against the fighter aircraft. This issue was made even worse by the fact that bombing aircraft were often just as fast, if not faster, than fighters. When Stanley Baldwin used the phrase the bomber will always get through in 1932, he was at the time probably correct due to these technological challenges. This would decisively change in the last few years before the war started, as a new generation of fighter aircraft would start to populate frontline squadrons and radar became more refined. Then as the war progressed, fighter aircraft and their capabilities skyrocketed which complemented the greater increase in radar and early warning systems, which made it more and more dangerous for bombers to complete their bombing missions. When looking back at the Second World War now, fighter pilots probably take up a proportion of the spotlight out of all proportion to their total impact when compared to other aircraft types. 
From the few uh, from the British Blitz, to the Zero Pilots of Japanese fame, to the Flying Tigers in China, and many others, the allure and celebrity of fighter pilots would be quite strong. This position would begin during the First World War, with the stories of the Knights of the Air that dueled over the battlefields becoming potent propaganda features. It even continues today, over 100 years later, as a person born in 1988 and who wanted nothing more than to join the Air Force after watching Top Gun at a young age, I was also not immune. I'm also just going to throw out there to listeners that the conversations with Dr. Hankins does spend a good chunk of time in the post-war period, in the really post-war period, discussing the aviation developments after the war, up to and including the design of the F-15 and F-16. I realize this is a bit out of our time period for the podcast, but I personally cannot resist any conversation about air power during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It's another period of time where there was great uncertainty about the future, where technology was rapidly advancing, and it was completely unclear as to how those advances would alter the landscape of aerial combat. This same type of technological uncertainty can be seen in the years before the Second World War, which presented a real challenge to those designers and theorists at the time who were trying to determine what should be built and how the resulting aircraft should be used. Before we get to the interview, I want to just mention that Dr. Hankins has a book that will be released in the coming months, Flying Camelot, the F-15, the F-16, and the Weaponization of Fighter Pilot Nostalgia. The book will be released on December 15th, 2021. He is also the host of the From Balloons to Drones podcast, in which he interviews guests about the past, present, and future of air power. You can find links to both of those things in the show notes. With that, let's get to the interview. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a History of the Second World War interview. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Hankins, the curator of U.S. Air Force history at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum and author of Flying Camelot, the F-15, the F-16, and the Weaponization of Fighter Pilot Nostalgia, which will be released this December 15th, 2021. Dr. Hankins, how's it going today? Going great. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Okay, so your book is about fighter pilot nostalgia. I'm assuming that began during the First World War 
when fighter pilots began. Um, so you can you talk a little bit about the roots uh, of this fighter pilot mythos or nostalgia during the First World War? Sure, sure. Um, I think there's a lot going on in World War One that leads to this creation of kind of a new subculture. Um, elements of it, not all elements of it are totally new, of course. Um, but the aspect of flying in these new kinds of machines, going above the air, getting in these dogfights, this kind of creates a culture. And a lot of scholars have talked about this. You know, I'm not the first one to put this forward by any means, but it's this idea that a lot of these fighter pilots are aggressive, uh, both in combat and kind of personality wise. Um, they're very competitive. Uh, they like technology, but certain types of technology, not all technologies, um, only ones that kind of enhance their, what they think is their important roles of, of dogfighting and aerial combat. Um, they're very kind of protective of their community. Even though they're competitive with each other, they form kind of a bond in, in their community um, that they often feel kind of like a persecuted minority. And uh, sometimes that's more true than at other times, but they kind of feel that and express it. Um, they like to talk about themselves using this kind of heroic imagery or language, comparing themselves to, you know, knights you know, the Knights of the Air, or maybe it's even comparisons to old, like mythology type of figures and things like that. Um, and they also, there's this kind of um, disdain for authority figures that goes along with some of this as well. Um, and independence uh, is, is a very big part of that. So all of these kind of elements are wrapped together and they also get coded as masculine in the way that sometimes if, if you're a pilot that you, if you don't, live up to certain elements that might cause some of the other pilots to question your your manhood in some way. So there's that aspect to it as well. So all these things kind of mix together and not I want to emphasize not all pilots are like this. You know, like some fighter pilots really go for all these stereotypes to an extreme level and some don't at all. Some reject these stereotypes completely and I think most people occupy some kind of space in between uh where they live up to this, but you see this kind of develop in the first world war um, and it gets passed down through the generations. And, and there's a lot of elements of this that are still in play today, although not quite as much as they were back. Then. Uh, interesting. Interesting. I, I know that uh, the, the very sort of frequent sort of portrayal of aerial combat during the first world war as this kind of chivalrous night jousting or whatever uh, is, is maybe a bit too common of a, of a structure to talk about it. Yeah. And you know what? It's not accurate. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that's an important thing to realize. Uh, a lot of folks, there's a lot of reasons why this image is very attractive, both to the public who wants to see this kind of warfare, but also the pilots themselves. You know, there's this idea that, you know, the war on the ground is very brutal. You know, it's trench warfare, it's masses of people, it's the mud of Passchendaele, it's, you know, all of these kind of images. And having the image of kind of a knightly, heroic individual riding this new complex machine that enables you to literally fly through the air, that's exciting, it's enticing, it sounds neat, um, it sounds like it's a callback to some kind of old heroic tale in some ways. So it's a very attractive story, and it gets used for propaganda purposes. It, it's certainly helpful for the pilots who, you know, aerial combat isn't really like that most of the time. 
you know, aerial combat is very brutal. Just like fighting on the ground can be brutal, fighting the air can be brutal. A lot of people get lit on fire and they crash and they die horribly. And uh, a lot of these pilots have uh, psychological trauma and PTSD, or what we would now call post-traumatic stress, uh, is fairly common for a lot of these pilots. And it's, it's a traumatic experience. So being able to picture yourself like this kind of noble heroic warrior is, is an attractive thing. And in fact, uh, one of the most remarkable things I found in the archives was uh, some letters from Henry Clay, who's a fighter pilot in World War One, And he's writing letters to his sister, I believe, or maybe his sister-in-law, and saying, oh, this is so great. I love being a pilot. I'm an individual. I'm doing the combat. This is great. I'm a noble heroic warrior. And he says it in better terms than that. But um, at the same time, he's writing to his brother who wants to be a pilot saying, don't do this. This is horrible. It's traumatic. Uh, most of us are dead. Uh, we're all fatalists now, like our, our hope in humanity is gone. And uh, it's remarkable to see the same things coming out of the same person. Uh, out of, you know, he's writing the same things to two different people at the same time. Interesting. And in as we move out of the First World War, you kind of move into the interwar years and sort of the future of aerial combat is debated, I guess. Not that it won't exist, but there's a big push for strategic bombing and, and the capabilities there and, and less of an emphasis maybe on uh, fighting or fighter pilots. Uh, so, so what is the kind of um, the reaction within sort of the fighter pilot group to these new developments during the 20s and 30s? Yeah, that's a great question, because uh, really those are the years where everything really changes. Um, and those ideas are not totally new. You know, people during, even before, but certainly during and after the First World War, writing about potential for bombing um, and how you might use aircraft and airplanes specifically to win wars in different ways, or perhaps what they would consider more humane ways. Um, and that thinking kind of starts to dominate in the United States, especially in the 30s as these new theories of air power and strategic bombardment start to really take shape in a specific way. And what ends up happening, at least for the United States in the 30s, is that you get these kind of camps that form. Uh, there are the bomber guys and there are the fighter guys, and they're all men at this point because women aren't allowed to fly for the military. Uh, but and there are other types of pilots, of course, there's observing and there's reconnaissance. And there, I don't mean to say that these are the only types of flying, but these kind of large camps form around how do we use aircraft effectively? And the bomber group starts to dominate in the United States, particularly at the Air Corps Tactical School, which is based in uh, Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama. And that's where a lot of this theory is being developed. And so some of the fighter guys get kind of pushed out or marginalized and uh, they some of the fighter group takes that to heart. And this is where this idea of like, we are the persecuted minority really starts to take shape. And some of them feel marginalized uh, within the air service. And that feeds into their kind of protective community culture. Um, but they're not like disregarded completely. I, I don't think there's anyone, certainly in the years leading up to World War II, like there's not a lot of people arguing that they don't need fighters at all. Uh, 
there's certainly a role for fighters. You have to get that air superiority before you can really use air power effectively. Um, but there is this idea that maybe the bombers can defend themselves. And so you get, you know, the B-17 with all the guns on it. The idea was that it could defend itself. And of course, that doesn't play out as well as anyone really hoped. Uh, and so fighter escorts really proved their worth in that war. Um, and in World War II, also, some of the culture that's changing is, you know, larger formations. There's more group tactics. There's just a lot of more airplanes in the air and a lot more complicated formations with different types of airplanes that are necessary. Tactics are evolving. Strategies and operations are evolving. So the culture is kind of evolving with it. And even though those core elements of like individualism and aggression and all those things are still there, um, they're adapting to this a little bit more of a group dynamic, a little more complicated with the tactics. And the technology is changing too. Uh, you've got all metal airplanes. You don't have the biplanes and triplanes that you had before. Uh, things are happening faster. Maybe your gun sights need a little bit of computer assistance to help you target. Things like that start to show up. Um, so the culture is adapting to all these new elements as well. Interesting. So when you when we move into like you're talking about the Second World War here, um, was there kind of a feeling that they were carrying on the legacy of the First World War pilots in some way? Um, were they kind of viewing themselves as that way? Were there attempts, propaganda or or whatever, to to make it seem like they they were doing that? Absolutely. I think what you just said about them carrying on kind of the legacy, I think that's exactly how, again, not everyone, but a lot of these pilots saw themselves in that way. And some of that is because it's the same people in some cases. A lot of the people that were pilots in World War One, you know, they're still around. They have moved up the ranks. A lot of them are in command positions uh, by the time World War II starts. And so there's kind of a direct mechanism there for passing that culture on because the same people are there and the people that were in World War One are now training or commanding the people that are coming up in World War II. Um, but a lot of the World War II pilots um, also like to look back to World War One and see themselves as part of this legacy. They kind of have a little bit of starry-eyed hero worship for some of the old crew. You know, a lot of them talk about, you know, they, they look towards your Eddie Rickenbackers, your Red Barons, things like that. They kind of have a reverence for these older fighter pilots from the previous war, and they want to either emulate them or show honor to them in some way or carry on what they see as their legacy. So certainly there's a, there's a direct continuation there. And you see that still play out, you know, all throughout the years. I mean, there are, uh, I'll, I'll mention Robin Olds, for example, um, he was a fighter ace in World War II and went on to have a, a very storied career in the Vietnam War. Um, he talks extensively about how much he kind of worshipped the World War I generation of fighter pilots in his memoir. And to the point where he claims to have met all these pilots as a kid, and some of the people he claims to have met were already dead by that point. So I don't know how that happened. But um, just that's how much reverence he kind of had for these figures. And he talks about meeting Eddie Rickenbacker and being so starstruck that he couldn't even speak. And, and you know, Robin Alds is maybe a more extreme case. Not all pilots are like him, but I think he's also representative of a certain type of pilot in those years. And you mentioned earlier, you know, fighter pilots have kind of a mixed relationship with technology. 
Mm-hmm. Was that sort of present sort of as the technology really advanced, especially in the late 30s and during the war years? I think so. Um, and it's something that I think you see it more in the later kind of post-World War II years, but you'll see it a little bit before then, too. Um, pilots want their aircraft to do certain types of things, right? They want it to be really agile, or at least I should say fighter pilots. Fighter pilots want their aircraft to do certain things, whether it's extreme maneuverability so that they can dogfight better, or maybe they want certain level of acceleration or um, top speed to some degree, but that's not the overriding characteristic. So every type of new technology that comes about, especially if it's something in the cockpit that the pilot has to interact with, then there's always this kind of challenge and response thing that happens where okay, here we've got an instrument to measure your speed or measure your orientation. And at first, pilots really bristle against that. And they're like, I don't need a machine to tell me how to do this. Uh, but then they figure out it makes them more effective. Same thing happens with gun sites. You know, in the Korean War um, in 1950, you've got all these fighter pilots that are now interacting with a new type of computerized gun site. And at first, there's this like, I don't need this gun site. Um, I'll be better off without it. Um, until they figure out that, oh, actually, this gun sight can really help me be more effective as a fighter pilot, and they adapt to it. And you see that happen again in the Vietnam years. You see it, it still happens today. So there's always this kind of, the culture is a little bit skeptical of new technologies and how they interact with the cockpit um, until the culture kind of adapts to that. Um, And there's a great book by Steve Fino about that that examines how that occurs in the F-86 and the F-4 Phantom and the F-15 Eagle. Um, if anyone's interested in that, I got to plug that. Um, so when we look at the sort of the post-World War II years, so you're entering the jet age, which is another, you know, big, big jump or a big change in these aircraft. Um, what is kind of the overriding sort of feeling uh, among fighter pilots at that point? Again, you know, still calling back to that legacy when their planes are moving ever further away and their combat capabilities are moving ever further away than what they used to be. Yeah, and it's it's not... It, on the one hand, it's not surprising that there's continuity because the, the amount of time we're talking about is actually not that long. You know, the World War I generation, they live until the 1960s, 1970s. And so there's a lot of them are still around and they're doing interviews and they're meeting with people and the World War II generation, you know, they're around, you know, 20 years longer than that and, and so on. So there's a remarkable amount of interaction. And anytime there's a new major conflict that the U.S. is involved in, there's kind of a mix of generations. So, like I said, in World War II, there's some old World War I pilots that are also falling in World War II. Same thing happens in Korea. There are entire classes of pilots that are, you know, very experienced pilots from World War II that are now flying in Korea and so forth into Vietnam, uh, and et cetera. Uh, there's a bigger gap, of course, between Vietnam and the Gulf War. Uh, for, and, and there's not a lot of, of crossover. There's not as much, I should say, crossover between those two. Uh, but you see that kind of direct interaction between these different generations of pilots. And that's I think a big part of what allows that continuity of culture to continue to, to pass along. Uh, but there is all these new technologies as, as technology is developing and it develops in certain ways. 
And this is something that uh, not just myself, but most kind of scholars about the history of technology will emphasize is that it, technology doesn't just come out of nowhere and appear in the cockpit, you know, it's or on an aircraft or whatever. They technologies are developed by people making certain choices. You know, they want machines that'll do certain types of things. So after World War II, things take a, a turn largely because of atomic weapons, right? Uh, nuclear weapons have created this kind of new possibility in this new age. And a lot of the aircraft technology development that's happening, at least in the military, is, you know, how do we defend against these weapons or, or people delivering these weapons? Uh, how do we deliver these weapons effectively ourselves? Uh, what types of technologies do we need to do that? So the idea of the fighter pilot and air-to-air combat, especially gun-based combat, is really challenged in the post-World War II year. And because the majority of pilots in World War II were bomber crews, I shouldn't say pilots exclusively, but the majority of air crews in World War II are on bombers. There's more possibility for promotion for them. So in the post-World War II years, most of the leadership in the Air Force, at least, is old bomber crew and bomber pilots. And uh, that starts to change because in Korea and Vietnam, there's not as much heavy bombardment from big, you know, large scale bombers. There's more tactical aircraft, you know. So a lot of the people that rise to leadership in the late 1960s into the 1970s and 80s, there's a lot more tactical pilots, attack pilots and fighter pilots. Uh, so they're the ones who's getting promoted more often. So these percentages kind of change. So you go from being a bomber-dominated force in the 50s and early 60s into being a more fighter and attack-dominated force in the 70s, uh, up really up to the present. Um, and that doesn't mean that, like, if you had a bomber background, you're only you only care about bombers. That's not what that means. Uh, people are generally more open-minded than that. But it does kind of speak to some trends. And it speaks to kind of the cultural trends that kind of underlie a lot of what's going on in those years. I think. When we start looking at sort of the, the subject of your book, uh, F-15, F-16, when we are looking at kind of the design phase or the sort of ideation phase on what sort of the next generation, was that the fourth generation, third generation, whatever they call them. Um, what kind of role did the idea of fighters dogfighting each other have in the development there? Well, that's a great question. Um, I'd say a huge role, uh, this idea. So like I was saying, kind of in the 50s and 60s, the aircraft that are being developed in those years, it's either bombers that are going to go deliver nuclear weapons Oh, supposedly. Um, a lot of them are these kind of smaller tactical planes. You had the Century series of fighters like the F-100, F-101, uh, F-102, you know, so on and so forth, uh, including the F-4 Phantom, which is one of my favorite planes. Um, and most of these are designed to deliver nuclear weapons, or maybe they're designed to be interceptors, which means if an enemy bomber is coming in, we want to fly to it as quickly as possible, shoot it down, preferably in one pass, and then get home quickly. Uh, so the idea that we're going to do close-turning dogfights, that like, very few people are thinking about that in the 50s and 60s. 
Um, so when they start designing what's going to eventually become the F-15, it starts off being called the FX for fighter experimental. Um, there's a huge debate happening within the Air Force about what is this airplane supposed to do? Um, and they, you have people on all sides. Some people want it to be more ground attack focused. Some people want it to be air to air only focused. Some people want a mix and they kind of want an even split of capabilities. And all of these kind of conceptions about what the plane is going to be are kind of at odds with each other. And that goes that goes on for some time until about 1966, late 1966, uh, when they bring in this guy named John Boyd. Um, and he's working with several other people that have this air-to-air conception. They think air-to-air and dogfighting specifically in, in the old kind of Korean War style is the key and is a very important, if not the most important part of air combat. So they want to design a plane to excel in that role. And because there is a lot of institutional inertia against that, they only succeed so much. Um, they, they wanted something that looked very different uh, from what the F-15 ends up being. But the F-15, I should say, does end up being a very capable and to this day undefeated air-to-air machine. So it's, it's a very effective air-to-air weapon, and which is what they wanted. It's, it's just not exactly what they wanted. They wanted something even more extreme than that. And in fact, that it's that team kind of led by John Boyd and his associate that go on to kind of create the F-16 or what ends up becoming the F-16. And that, that's a whole other process as well. But that, it came out of that same vision of they wanted an air-to-air only kind of old-school dogfighter. And they succeed more with the F-16 than they did with the F-15 in terms of achieving their vision. But even in that case, um, the Air Force kind of institutionally pushed back in other directions and you get this kind of compromised fighter that's very effective at air-to-air. The F-16 is great. It's very capable. Uh, But it wasn't exactly what the air-to-air advocates wanted. So, uh, you know... um... Those two planes have been around for a while now, uh, still yeah. around. So when we look at sort of modern uh, sort of pilot, um, modern fighter pilot uh, mindsets, you know, is there is that nostalgia, is that fighter pilot mentality from the First World War still holding on even now when we are, you know, very far removed uh, from from when that happened? Yeah, yeah. Uh... Actually, I would say very much so. In fact, you see this a lot when you look at, and this is, I have a lot of examples of this in the book, but just a couple that come to mind. Um, In the early 60s, when you first start seeing this advocacy for a new air-to-air fighter, that's eventually going to be the F-15. The people that are advocating for it, even before Boyd gets involved, there's other people advocating for it. And they talk about wanting to take the Air Force back to what they call, and there's a quote, the white scarf stuff. And they want to like bring back this idea of the aerial duels. Uh, they call back, they reference, you know, Rickenbacker a lot. They reference the Red Baron a lot and Bulky and some of these old school World War I air combat figures and kind of the people that they read about as kids and things like that. And I should say, a lot of this memory of World War One and the idea that it's like white scarf blowing in the wind and we're doing these aerial duels, 
lot of that is constructed. It's not super accurate to how that war really played out, uh, but it's the image that has endured in the memory and kind of popular culture about this war. You know, everybody thinks about Snoopy and the flying ace. And stuff. So that's the image that they want to get back to. And in fact, if you fast forward to when they're doing test flights on the F-16, or it was then the YF-16, the prototype, uh, the te- one of the test pilots for the YF-16 thought that, wow, this thing really handles so much like an old school World War I fighter that he started wearing his leather helmet, his World War I style leather helmet on the test flight. Uh, and it just so directly speaks to how they were trying to capture what they thought old World War I style air combat was like. Now, since then, you know, that was in the early 70s that those test flights were happening. So a lot of time has passed. Um, you see it less now um, because one of the things that happened in the 70s and 80s was missiles really came into their own. You could make the case into the mid-70s that, as the fighter advocates did, that missiles weren't really working out super well and that we needed to focus on gun combat. And this is, you always hear this argument that, well, the F-4 didn't have a gun and what a mistake that must have been and, and we need to get back to having guns on the airplane. Gun combat's the way to go. Um, or so the argument goes. Uh, because during the Vietnam War, you know, missiles weren't working out super well. But in the mid-70s, there are new generations of guided missiles that come into play, and they really change a lot. And one of the things they changed was tactics. And especially for F-15 pilots, the idea of really engaging your targets from beyond visual range and being able to actually do that effectively starts to be a reality. And so now that we get into the present, the idea of if, if you're getting into a, a turn and burn, close, you know, close turning agile dogfight now, a bunch of other stuff has probably gone really wrong. Like you, these pilots today are trying to take out enemies before they even realize that they're there. So that's one thing that's different. But a lot of the mindset is still there. The idea of how you're going to track your enemies and maneuver to get in the best position. Some of that stuff is still there. And then that calls back to this old First World War uh, mindset in some ways. But it looks a lot different now, especially with stealth technology and guided weapons. It's it's always, you know, the the legacies of, of these conflicts, uh, First World War, Second World War, and, and then so on and so forth. It's it's amazing how long the legacies can last in some very specific ways, uh, like with what we've talked about here today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a sense of when you talk to even current day pilots, and, and again, it's not everybody, it might not even be a majority anymore, but there are certain pilots that really feel this kinship and this connection to the previous generations, whether it's the World War II generation or even the World War I generation. And you see that in how they talk about it. You also see it in symbology, I think, um, you know, using the same squadron insignias and mascots and mottos and those types of things. Some of that is just a heritage thing or a a kind of group identity thing that can help build morale. Uh, But all of those things tend to call back to this World War I 
origin point in some way uh, where everybody's kind of looking back to that.